welcome to Gin and Gentlemen with me, Eleanor Harkstead, bringing the gin and thundering in on a stagecoach filled with chaps wearing quirky cravats, Catherine Curzon. Today we're going to talk to you about writing historical fiction um, because this podcast is going out on the 12th of March, which is when our novel The Ghost Garden goes on pre-order and it will be published on the 23rd of April. It's set in the 1920s, but of course, um, historical settings aren't unusual for us, are they? No, they are not. We are old hands at historical settings from our very first novel and we're going to talk a bit more about the challenges inherent in writing historical fiction and I think as well some of the things that we like about writing historicals. Exactly so uh, to start with I think we shall delve into detail and costume and Mm. things like that. Mm. My bugbear because (laughs) in our other writing lives we both write historical non-fiction so We're no stranger to research, no strangers to research. And I think that in some ways that can spoil you for enjoying period drama. We watched last night a film, um, Perfume, the story of a murderer. And it was the period detail was super, super spot on. But every Mm. woman had shaved armpits. Every woman in every social class. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I had to point this out loudly to Mr. Curzon. <laughs> but it's that, that sort of thing that you probably just, just passes you by, you know, or passes look understandably. I'm sure I watch things that I don't know is, are wrong and pass me mm. by. But we're both quite, um, we're quite pernickety about detail in our own work, aren't we? We are, yes. I'm just like I remember watching. I remember watching a Poirot once. So you know, normally, like the women's hair is like immaculate. And there was mm. this one episode where there was this where they whoever they'd hired to do the pin curls or and the um like the Marcel waves and mm. things, they were really bad. Oh really? I was just going brush it out. Do you Why think it was they... towards the end of the season they'd run out of money and they were just doing it themselves? It may have been. But then I thought, don't they wear wigs? I don't know. Yeah, they usually do. Yeah. That's really strange. It's frustrating when you see it, though. It is. And you're like going, oh, like you go, those shoes are wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, God, those shoes are wrong. Or, I don't know. Something... Yeah, like that wig is wrong. And it's only yeah. wrong maybe by a couple of years, but you know it's wrong. It, exactly it's it's quite frustrating it is um, i mean in in a novel of course you can just say he put on his shoes and you wouldn't know they were the wrong shoes unless they specified the shoe and, and mm. the reader is filling in the shoe from their bank and that's, of images in their head but... that's the other thing isn't it where you don't want to go too far down the other road and say and we've all done it and then chopped it out at the editing stage say exactly. i've spent loads of time researching this so you're gonna know exactly. you're gonna see every on... bit of that shoe he put on his spectators, which were... Uh... <laughs> so it's almost, it becomes almost a museum catalogue entry. Yeah. And putting in too many details slows down the story as mm. well. So, mm. so you have to be careful. And that. I think as well, it's how you, how you pepper the details, isn't it? Mm. So if obviously sometimes things are appropriate to the plot that you need to know the detail. But, you know, is it's it like Terry Pratchett, you say your father the king moment. So you say, well, sir, as you know, your father the king. Mm. rather than pepper the detail and the facts as they were where they need to yeah. be just in the narrative instead of going we're the authors and we've researched this and we're really proud that we know it so here's a massive info dump for you the reader enjoy yeah and it it's one of those things I mean, even even writing non-fiction what I tend to do is if if there's like a lot of information and I think I want the I want 
it's mm. useful to people to know this, but it's not necessarily in the actual body. Then mm. I just use a footnote, but you can't really do that in no. a novel unless you're writing a French lieutenant's woman, of course. But, yeah. yeah, exactly. I've um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big boy. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the footnote in my nonfiction yeah. because I do royal history. That sometimes you need to get across information about. Uh, particularly my scandal books that you need to get across the information about these people's parents were super scandalous too or alternative super pious or whatever and this was the society they were in this was the attitude but as you say it just overbalances the actual narrative exactly and i wanted for instance lately i was i'm editing one where i wanted to put in this ridiculous marriage agreement that basically bound the hands of the bride completely for the rest of her life oh no yeah but you couldn't you know it said that she had no right to anything even if she was her husband dies she couldn't even have, she couldn't have literally one penny to call her own if her husband died it became under the control of her son and he <sighs> decided what she could have if her dad was still alive he would decide. and i wanted to put in the actual text of the agreement but it was written in 17th century legalese so it yeah. gets an appendix <laughs> exactly exactly but Is as you good? say you can't do that in i suppose some authors do put notes in but that's mm. not something we've ever felt the need to do i don't think yeah i mean i'm I'm kind of thinking something like the captain and the cavalry trooper when Mm. we were when we were coming up with it and we were trying to think you know Mm. why why is jack not at the front line what's he doing in the Mm. car why is he only just turned up so we had to look at things like when um conscription began and Mm. who was conscripted and all this sort of thing but Mm. we weren't going to have like a big chunk like a whole sort of like page that was about conscription in the first or it's just kind of dropped in with like um captain thorns saying you shouldn't be here anyway because your dad's a farmer you should be running a farm mm. <laughs> yeah and it's that thing of he you know jack desperately wants to do his bit so he's yeah. just managed to get in so yeah. and i think as well that was um that captain cavalry trooper again that we wanted to talk quite often you know we've all we've all seen footage of trenches and we all know about trench warfare in world war one mm. and i think that there's quite often a misconception that everybody that went to the trenches everyone that went out to the front was there and died there and spent or spent the entire war there mm. um, as opposed to having periods at the front and then back behind the lines and then back at mm. the front and you know people did survive and thorn talks about having been to the front before but mm. he's never been ordered over the top before which is obviously going into no man's land yeah. um onto the neck onto the eight opposition trenches and it was important to us because I think I'd seen, um, I'd, I'd read a book, it might have been an autobiography by someone who had been a soldier on the Western Front. Mm. And he talked in that and he, you know, he was only, um, he was a, a trooper, he was like Jack. He talked about the periods at the front and how people thought that they must have been horrific constantly and what mm. I thought was interesting, which I never thought of, is he talked about very long periods of boredom with you know nothing happening and then punctuated by these horrendous you know horrendous artillery barrages and things like that and then mm. going back behind the lines for a bit before you moved up a bit more and hearing that your friends were fine or not you know not fine but mm. i think that it is when you're growing up you have and you do your your history 
you have this idea of oh you go you get put in a trench and you stay there until you the war ends or you die yeah i think there's, mm. there's a very big focus on trenches and mm. and i think so much so that when my granddad um fought in the second mm. world war and he told me he was in trenches mm. and i was like you were in trenches mm. i didn't know you had trenches in the second world war because yeah, there's so yeah. much connected with the first yeah. world war i have been in a first world war trench as well um at sanctuary wood uh, mm. which is uh, in pa- passchendaele happened and it was obviously that that turns up in the book as well um and i did you know you can go through what the remains of the trenches mm. and through a, a communication tunnel and and things we had wellington boots because it was a yeah. school trip um but i think when when we got to writing the bit about them being in the trenches i kind of i thought about that about having been there but i didn't like in, in, meticulously describe sanctuary no. wood because <laughs> it's a it's just a it's just a part of a trench somewhere one on that, of, on that bit of my oh. favorite little moments in that book is when thorn is first moved up to the front mm. and he's listening to the gramophone in the trench and sort of combing his hair you know and mm. he's, he's even thinking this is ridiculous why am I doing this when I'm going over the top I'm probably gonna die mm. and it, to me I, I like that because it's that it's that thing that you know when you're in a crazy situation that quite quite often you respond by just saying well I'm gonna make this normal so mm. the world out there is nuts but I'm mm. going to do what I always do. I'm going to put on the gramophone. I'm going to, you know, get make my uniform look just right. It doesn't matter that I'm going into no man's land. I'm going into no man's land as I would go on parade. Yeah. I, I like What I liked about that bit as well was where um, we did actually do a bit of research into gramophones and that there mm. were actually trench gramophones. Mm. <laughs> that you could, so that was, that was spot on. Like, but you yeah. don't know it's spot on. It's just, it's just a natural bit. Yeah. He and had it's... a gramophone at the chateau, and now he's got one in the yeah. trench. So. And then somebody along the line is um, whistling the song. I think he, when he's listening to it, someone starts whistling it. And to mm. me, it was just such an evocative moment that I could see it and I could hear mm. it. Mm. And this sort of like you could almost see like this awful no man's land. And you know, when he talks about on the other side, there's some German captain in his trench thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah. And by this time tomorrow somebody one you know one of those two men might be dead and like he said you know maybe i'll be over in his trench then and he'll be or he'll be here and Mm. it's that thing of knowing that that so not that far away over there there's somebody who just by the didn't the fact that they were born in a different country Mm. and you're now at war with that country this man that you don't know who is basically you he's just as normal as you but is also, if you like, sort of like, you know, he's a soldier, so he's the tool of this huge machine. And I think, I think the way what you've just described as well is like almost like the emotional realism. Yeah. That you can, you can get as many historical facts as you like and fling them yeah. at your novel. But I think you have to, you have to try and get into the character's headspace mm. and into their heart, in, essentially, mm. to, to, fe- to feel what they would have felt. Yes. Which can be quite upsetting because I remember when we, when we were writing that, that whole sequence in the trench I found quite mo- I found it very moving to write and I went downstairs to make a cup of tea and the radio was on and um, Elgar's Nimrod was playing mm. and I was like, oh no! And I, cr- I burst into tears. Really? Yeah. But I think I remember because I, you know, it was quite an unusual situation in that the bit where Thorne is preparing, I wrote that on my own. Like mm. we weren't doing our live writing thing. And I remember mm. saying to you, I just suddenly, I can't remember what I was doing, but I suddenly thought, oh, I can see it. And when I'd finished writing it, cause it's quite, it's not a long section that I wrote on my own, but it's, it's this, you know, it's the establishing scene because it's my character alone in the trench. Mm. And when I finished writing it, I felt almost like I was coming up for air. Mm. You know, because you do 
get so much into your character and something like that is so you know we've all as they we've all read about it we can't imagine what it's like or we can imagine no. but we can't we can imagine it but it's probably just a fraction of what it was like you yeah. know that we've you know we're very lucky it's, and it's it's not even the physical conditions as you say it's the emotional state of living with knowing that tomorrow even if you live through tonight tomorrow morning you're going over the top into no man's land mm. but you know but don't i should say to readers if you do read the book we're not going to give away the ending but hopefully yeah. you won't be in tears at the end yeah hopefully not you won't be crying <laughs> like me in the kitchen because no, that isn't the end no man's land is not the end <laughs> yes. um i think well, things like character realism which i think in a way you've kind of touched on mm. there in a sense mm. um I think it can also be this issue of, of how they behave because I think I think television costume dramas are sometimes quite guilty of this where they kind of the characters can especially female characters can feel as if they've been helicoptered in from the 21st century mm. um you know you want to have fairly feisty-ish characters but but mm. ones who are kind of feisty-ish for the period they mm. come from absolutely mm. and obviously because we write um predominantly male romance Mm -hmm. that that's a whole other character realism you have to deal with the realities of being gay Mm. in the past and a whole new set of challenges they you know that that brings with it i guess an example of that would be um in the captain's ghostly gamble captain sheridan Mm. who is this incredibly out and proud dandy but he's a ghost (laughs) <laughs> and he's the ghost of a man who died in the 18th century. And now he's quite clearly, you know, a fop. And I think if, yes. if he was alive now and you met him, you'd say, oh, he's really camp. Yeah. But at the time, that really camp foppery was actually seen as really masculine. You were, you know, the height of fashion. And mm. you, were all, you were like the, pop, the rock star of your time. Yeah. So he, but he, I guess over the 250 years of haunting, he's watched <laughs> the modern world come and go and he's thought, oh, you know, I don't have to <laughs> pretend I can be as cheeky, I can flirt with my good looking fellow ghost as much as I like. And he'll, <laughs> and I guess over 200 years, he'll have to get used to it. And, and Rookwood is, he's just a sort of bloke, isn't he, really? He's a bloke. But yeah, you know, Sheridan's always like, oh, you're all dusty and all yeah. smell. Why aren't you wearing gold? <laughs> Why aren't you wearing silk? <laughs> Yeah, why don't you ever get changed? Because I like the idea of ghosts changing and that Sheridan has this, you know, this unending supply of amazing ethereal suits. <laughs> you know, silks and velvets and lace. And uh, he just kind of steps in and out of paintings with a little flower in his hand and things like that. But he sort of raised being a fop to being to an art form, hasn't he? It's become his career. I think so, Yeah. Um, in the ghost garden mm. um, we have Cecily who mm. is hopefully she's convincingly feisty for the 1920s but she is in a very odd situation in a sense because um, the novel is set mainly um, in a very remote boarding school mm. on Exmoor and she's grown up there because her father was the headmaster and then she was married off to the new headmaster um, when her father died so she's been very sheltered and and that's I did worry people might think oh she's a bit bit wimpy but I think you have to kind of think of the context of the Mm. story and you know she's had a very difficult life it's a sheltered life but it's been hemmed in and then the story part with one of the things the threads of the story is how she kind of becomes free yeah because her husband's not just he's not just 
of his time a kind of respectable man he's he's very abusive mm. and he's emotionally abusive and he's physically abusive when his mm. emotional abuse doesn't get him what he wants yeah and i think you know that as you say you have to take her on a journey if she suddenly turned around one day and went that's it you know i'm packing my bags and i'm feisting out of here yeah that as i think readers would quite rightly say oh no because you know sadly in her situation anyway especially in that time where's she gonna go exactly what's her support so she goes into the village and says my husband's horrible to me and they say well you know go home exactly you made your bed yeah and it was important to us obviously because when she meets raf raphael de chastelaine her little impish gardener who turns up to teach latin at the school as well as whittle out some nasty ghosts in the woodpile um we didn't want her to sort of go oh now there's a man here he'll protect me but it's through her friendship with raf that she starts to see that there is a world outside and that there are ways in which she can little acts of rebellion that all start to build don't they they're almost like she makes all these tiny little acts of rebellion that's almost like mm. not in the rope ladder together mm. to make her sort of dare to escape yeah because she, she starts to discover that you know she's had this father mm. and, a, and a husband who've told her over and over again you're useless you're just you know just you're just there to look after men mm. you know you're there to put the tea on and tidy the mm. apartment and that's it where then she starts to discover that she has actually got skills and abilities mm. and gifts which in the world of a paranormal romance uh aren't your ordinary no. <laughs> skills and gifts and but they're not the sort of those too, ordinary skills and gifts Yes. So it's not like she's very good at making biscuits, actually, isn't she? <laughs> well, she's very um, she's very watchful. Mm. So she actually she's that person. She's kind of like you think you think, oh, she's meek. She's like a little meek mouse. But in actual fact, she's oh. she knows almost she pretty much knows everything that's going on at the school. Yeah. She's so and because she is so contained by her husband, you know, there's only really she's got one friend, really, because he doesn't let her out that mm. much. She's expected mm. to clean, to cook, to be in at certain times when he comes home. And he wants to know what she's been doing all day. So the easiest thing to do is just stay at home. But she's mm. very, we see her watching from the window and we get the impression when she does go out that, you know, the kids like her and the teachers like her. And her watchfulness, I think, is very useful in the kind of mystery that they have to unravel, isn't it? Exactly. It's exactly, it is. it is. And it's also the first in a series. Mm. It is the De Chastelaine Chronicles. Yes, yes, yes Queen. <laughs> so you get to find out what happens to someone like Cecily. When, you know, if she gets out of the mm. school, what, what will she go on and do? Yeah, and so. Raph as well took us back to mm. World War One because he was on the Eastern Front. He's Romanian, mm. um, and he was on the Eastern Front, which is something that I didn't know a huge amount about. I didn't know a mm. huge amount about Romania's you know, rather terrible experience in the war. Um, and yeah. although you don't see a lot of that on the page, it was important for us, again, because Raf's been through it in the uh. recent past and his family have lived through it, along with all those people, you know, like them that had to live through it. So it was important that we knew about it because that would be such a huge part of who he's become. Exactly. And I think that's played because he's a character who's very, you know, he, he loves to be out in the garden. He loves to just be working with his plants. And mm. he's pretty, I mean, there's there's a bit of a big twist about Raph, which I won't spoil, but it's, you know, yes. but he's uncomplicated, yet 
in a rather big way is quite unusual. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> but he's very, very uncomplicated man. And his he's watchful too, but he's also much more likely to go, right, let's go and do it. Whereas yes. Cecily is kind of, well, no, let's take our time. And they complement one another really well. And yes, I think so. I think what I, I really love about it as well is that it's it's not that Cecily meets him and they fall madly in love and she he carries her into the sunset, but they become become friends. Yeah. And it's that friendship and that because he is, you know, he's from Romania, he offers a glimpse of a completely different world that she's never even, you know, she's she's barely been out of her home, her village, let alone out of the country. Had she left Somerset at all? No, I don't think or, or she Devon? has. No. I don't think so. Don't she think had. She she's not really gone further than that. And when she did try to get out in the First World War and she said, I'm going to go and work at a munitions factory and she couldn't get away. Mm. She had no money. She had nothing. And, mm. you know, and she actually gets the opportunity to, to yeah. see more of life. So. Much more over the series. Vast, vast <laughs> lots of life and lots of the world as well. Yes. We're very excited about it. Yes. Um, the other thing really in a way we've touched on this is getting the timeline right yeah. so you know if you're setting something in the 20s you've got to know something about the first world war because your characters have just lived through that mm. we've got a book coming out later in the year called the captain and the theatrical so it's another captivating captain's novel yes. and it's a regency it is um which was excellent fun with cravats yeah. go -go. <laughs> carriages and uh, big houses etc we had an issue with the timeline in that one because um one of the characters the captain captain ambrose pendleton um he was at waterloo and of course waterloo was in june 1815 and then we wanted uh, the story to be it couldn't be immediately afterwards so it couldn't be in 1815 so then we're like oh we'll set it in 1816 and then we couldn't set it in 1816 because that is the year without a summer mm. so in 1816 there was a volcano, a volcanic eruption, and it basically affected the weather across the entire world. Mm. Um, so, so there wasn't really a summer. There was it was the the clouds of ash and smoke going up into the atmosphere, um, just caused havoc. It caused havoc with um, harvests. Mm. Um, so it caused unrest with there not being enough food for people. It just caused all sorts of issues, and it's also partly why we get. Frankenstein being written in a sense mm. because it's you know it's it's the Shelleys and Byron in in the villa by the lake they can't go out walking so they're just at home and there's bad weather and they're writing stories together but obviously you can't have nice genteel regency picnics in um, 1816 <laughs> so we had to move it to 18, 1817 and as well you know to get across how bad it was I think it was sort of like August in was it Massachusetts, I think, that snow was falling? Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I know because I had a guest post um, on my website that was about the year of that summer in America. And she is a Pennsylvanian. And she said that mm. the lakes were icing over in July in Pennsylvania. Goodness I me. I know. It's insane. And obviously, also, there was, it, as you say, it was terrible for harvest. So it, it was the last, you know, not the last fine, but it was the last widespread famine as well across parts of the united kingdom where we don't mm. associate with famine you know we don't expect that um yeah. and other parts of europe where they're experiencing the worst famines that i think probably of that century probably hasn't been beaten to today and hopefully you know obviously never will be yeah 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 so it's pre pretty bad i think things that you think oh regency everything's lovely mm. and everyone's just pootling around in bonnets mm. and cravats 
But obviously, and, you know, most people that read that, or a lot of people that read that book, wouldn't know that. No. But there are going to be people that read it who devour the Regency, you know, mm. and know all about the Regency. And they quite rightly would say they didn't even know that was the year without summer. So our summer picnics had to go for a Burton, as it were, if we're saying it in 1816. <laughs> Yeah, like, should we just have them stay indoors all the time? Well, no, they have to go outside occasionally. <laughs> outside sometimes. Um, but yeah, it's I th- it's just that awareness of what was going on in the world at the time, and uh, it's it's actually um, a, it's a Regency comedy, isn't it? Yeah. About um, Captain Pendleton, whose father is very ambitious for him to make a good marriage, so starts to arrange a good marriage for him with an extremely rich lady. So Pendleton's friend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but not for long. <laughs> not for long. Pendleton's friend um is very successful on the stage in the guise of, of La Cosima. And Cosima, everybody thinks, is a wonderful comic actress, but she's in fact a man called Amadeo Orsini. <laughs> um but it's not it's funny because it it's obviously it's drag. To us we would think it was drag but it's not a drag act. So as yeah. the, far as the world is concerned, she is Cosima Orsini and she's Amadeo's sister. Mm. And he decides that it would be a great jape and a great help to Captain Pendleton if Cosima turns up at the house claiming to be Pendleton's true love, who has <laughs> tristed and intrigued with him across Europe and now <laughs> demands to marry him. And from there, there's a huge amount of silliness and... You know, Amadeo has to be super good at being able to change from Amadeo into Cosima in the blink of an eye. And as you would expect, somebody in the household takes a liking to Amadeo um, and someone else takes a liking to Cosima. And it was great fun, wasn't it? It was super fun. But obviously, again, you have that um, thing of realism that to be real, they had to believe that Cosima was a woman. He couldn't just say, well, I'm actually a man. You know, the man I love is a drag queen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's i'm you know the, the woman i love is an actress which actually his parents aren't that well his dad isn't that happy about anyway no um but that was something where the, we had to think about lots of things there didn't we like um mm. how does an actual fact it's it's not as difficult as we thought how does cosima create cosima yeah you know in a time when there wasn't any tucking tape and things like that <laughs> um <laughs> What does what goes into creating a woman in yeah. that era? And in actual fact, as you know, as I say, it's, thankfully the underwear then was quite conducive to concealing the male shape, if you like. Yes. <laughs> and the, obviously the dresses. But um, yeah, it was great fun, great, great fun to write. But again, we wanted that realism of someone who'd been at Waterloo. And though he isn't, you know, he's he's not suffering terrible flashbacks or anything he was no. involved in an absolutely terrible battle the only sign he really has from it is like a tr- his hand trembles occasionally mm. so i think there's a bit where he's playing the piano and he's trying to stop his hand from mm. trembling and, and the more his dad insists and, and goes on and on and on about this marriage he wants him to have with this woman he mm. doesn't love and he knows you know in a way he's kind of being kind to her in a sense he can't be a good husband to her um but obviously he can't in that period admit anything about mm. his, his orientation um so when he gets more and more stressed and his hand keeps trembling um but that's it's kind of you know 
Regency PTSD yeah. in, in effect. Yeah. I really enjoyed writing his mum, though. <laughs> yeah, she's great. I really enjoyed writing um, Pagolo, the performing parrot. Yes. It is so it's quite a fun story. You've got the sort of silliness going on. There's a sort of slightly serious aspect to it as well with Captain Pendleton and his trembling mm. hand. But um yeah, and in fact we started writing this not long after I found out one of my ancestors was at Waterloo in the Scots Grays. Mm. So I think as so well it's But um, he was um he was a farrier, so he wasn't really he wasn't a it's, captain. It's got a touch of Sheridan about it. Mm. You know, I love I obviously I love Georgian comedy, Georgian theatrical comedy, and I feel like it's got quite a big. Obviously, it's a bit saucier than Sheridan, but I think it's got a big dose of Sheridan. You know, kind of mistaken identity and social class, mm. and the most yeah. rich and respectable. The you know the, the would be fiance's family are. You find out they they've got nefarious schemes of their own for wanting the marriage. So we wanted to get the realism right in terms of Ambrose's. Um, wartime experience but Mm. equally um amadeo comes from italy and a titled rich family where he's a gay man who makes his living dressing as a woman and obviously his family know they haven't got a daughter called cosima so he has to tell them this is what i do and he talks to pendleton about um I think he talks about how he dressed as a woman just for carnival and it was meant to be a big joke Mm. um, just to kind of gauge the reaction of his family. And obviously his dad in particular was not impressed. Um, So we go Mm. into that as well. Like, what did it mean then? What would be the process? What would happen to him when he told his family about this? And obviously I don't want to spoil the story, but it's quite a rip roaring romp, but it does have quiet moments. So when he's talking to Pendleton about telling his family and what that has meant um and just the realism of how does one even begin to broach with a man that one's attracted to in a time when being gay was illegal you know punishable by death how did you even begin to tell that man that you're attracted to them unless you met them somewhere where you knew the code was that you were both both there to look for a man so it's the understanding of the code as well and Personally, I I think that those little moments are what really illuminate the world that's going on around this high comedy, if that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. And and then there's a thing of you know Captain Pendleton, who obviously seems very straight to everybody. Yeah, Um, yeah. Even even to Amadeo, who presumably is quite good at spotting. Yeah, you hope so. uh, And I think he's like it. We found in that, for instance, the little things that you know really are the kind of like bane of your life writing period fiction which are things like getting the travel time right yeah so how long if you're being pursued from london to yorkshire how long will it take them to catch you up and things like that you know and again regarding the italian question just things like the territorial boundaries in europe particularly like which kingdoms were belong to which groups or which duchy belonged to which kingdom etc etc and just getting it right so that someone who is reading it doesn't go that doesn't sound right yeah because if someone thinks that doesn't sound right that's trouble exactly like if you started talking about belgium (laughs) (laughs) and obviously that comes up a lot for me because my non-fiction is about obviously the hanoverians Mm. and there are points where they seem to be different alliance every month let alone every few years yes 
Yeah, so, so exactly when is this set? Are there any volcanic eruptions? Yeah. Are there any revolutions in Italy? Yes. <laughs> Are we good to go? <laughs> Shall we go with it? And something else that we have to think about a lot is, um, well, you know, hide your grannies because it's contraception. Yes. <laughs> it's contraception and, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, things like lubricant. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. I have to. I used to work at a, a GU clinic, which is where you go for your um, issues downstairs. Um, downstairs issues. <laughs> downstairs issues. Um, but you have to make sure it's realistic because obviously, especially if you're writing about chaps who who love chaps, they mm. they do need um, lube. So we have to kind of think about what would work. Um, I mean, I, the number of times I've had to research the history of the condom. Yes. <laughs> So were they using rubber ones at this point or, or animal ones still? Or, you know, it's it's uh, it's all delightful, but you have to get it right. And of course, it underpins like what your characters are going to get up to. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, it's all it's all wonderful fun. Yeah. It, but it, again, it all goes into the realism, doesn't it? And you can't have someone yeah. who's not expecting to have a tryst that night and maybe hasn't ever had a relationship with a man to suddenly have something on hand. That sounds awful. <laughs> Something to <laughs> hand, yeah. Something to hand that they need. But as authors, it's our job to say, well, what would be right in that period? And you can't just ignore it. And obviously, you know, contraception is one thing, but as you say, lube is another, certainly. And you can't just mm. ignore it and go, well, you know, people can imagine it. Because if I was a reader, I'd suddenly think, oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I, having, having read stories where people get it on and if they don't cover things like like contraception i i just i feel a bit dragged out of the story because mm. it is something that you have to think about and you can't just have res- responsibility free boffing maybe for some writers and readers it's escapism so they're not that bothered mm. but for me it does bother me and maybe it is partly because of the job i used to have. i think it is because there are times when we've been writing and we've you've sort of said the contraception i've said no i don't think so in this you know when it feels like within certain periods and certain characters mm. it feels wrong that they would yeah but certainly you know anything we write that's modern day and mm and mf is the same that you know, again, it's mm-hmm. it's right for that relationship with those characters, but I think our default setting is for them to use contraception. Yeah, and not in great detail. You know, we don't go on about it. Yeah, no, there's not like like five paragraphs describing no. them. But I think more <laughs> often than not, particularly in contemporary with our writing, you will see it. You can you can do it in under a sentence. Yeah, exactly. Know, it's you know, but it's just one of those things that for, I think for readers, it's just a thing they're okay there. And in a way, what that tells you something about the character, doesn't mm. it? You know, the fact that they're they've mm. come prepared or you know or that they are prepared or you know it's um it's all good i should explain um i'm using a headset to record this and i have put a pop sock over the no <laughs> over expense the mo- arm with the microphone no expense um, on our recording. But it does it does oddly look like uh, some sort of contraceptive device <laughs> i i, <laughs> I would to you wonder through, so. about the contraceptive devices you're using <laughs> yeah i wouldn't use a pop sock no <laughs> Don't think a pop sock's going to cut the mustard. No, um, <laughs> it might not work. <laughs> but there we are. Let's go on to our our new regular slot, Helen. Yes. Who's putting the fizz in your gin this week? Well, 
I've been watching the new series of Endeavour, and I'm a very big fan of Endeavour. I love it. Um, and I'm, I have to say, Roger Allen mm. has been putting the fizz in my gin. He is, he's a fantastic actor, and he's got a really good... This series of, of Endeavour, he's, he's quite troubled, and he's holding a lot in, but he can... The amount he can convey just with a, with a, just a shrug or an, a raise of his eyebrow is amazing. So he's definitely been putting the fizz in my gin. Great singer, too. Great singer. The original Javert in Les Miserables ah. in the West End. And also an absolutely brilliant stone in City of Angels, which he's a hard-boiled PI, and it's kind of like a parody of film noir, and he's absolutely brilliant as this kind of louche layabout private eye. Well, there we are. So he's, yes, lots of fizz in the gym. <laughs> and who's putting the fizz in your gym, Catherine? Putting the fizz in my gym this week is um, a fictional character, and it's David from Cold Feet, which I've been watching uh-huh. on ITV, as I've been watching it for 20 years, whatever. Um, David, oh. played by the lovely Robert Bathurst, who made an appearance in our last podcast, not literally, oh, yes. but his name. But also, just because, like, David's not homeless anymore, which is the subject of lots of conversation with my cold feet watching pals. So, hooray, David's got a house. So, as you can tell, we've been watching a lot of ITV these few weeks. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, there we are. So, um, thank you for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed our podcast. And hopefully, we'll be talking at you again very soon. Bye. Find out more at our website, kersenharkstead.co.uk. Music courtesy of www.purple-planet.com